0: it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, here Together with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode has been dedicated by Ari Miller, in honor of Rabbi Jonathan Bienenfeld. And this episode is going to be about a... Very interesting, and I believe apropos topic. A bit contemporary, a little bit different style than what we usually do here on Jewish History Soundbites. And it is the recent phenomena um, that we are witness phenomena, phenomena 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 whatever it is that we are witness to in the Hasidic and beyond world of Mashpiim. I guess we can call them influencers or teachers or inspirers um that attract quite a following, and how do we see that in the context of Jewish history, especially in regarding the history of the Hasidic movement. Before I get to that, though, uh, we just had an episode last week um, about divorce in Jewish history, recent Jewish history, and there was a correction submitted by, I don't know, five to ten people, very astute listeners of Jewish history soundbites, and I error, erred in um, my recounting a story uh, regarding the Chesam Seifer and Rebbe Landau, the rabbi in Brody. Um, and apparently, I had, I had said that, incorrectly said that um, the Chesam Seifer was protesting this idea of writing a get on Shabbos, where apparently it was, God forbid that anyone would have any intention of writing a get on Shabbos. It actually is about this Holiday that we just experienced. It was about the second day of Shavuos, and writing a get on the second day of Shavuos under extenuating circumstances. And of course, the Chassam Seifer was um, protesting that vehemently as well. In other words, he was completely against that idea as well. But the the this Rebbe Landau, who had thought of the idea, um, he wasn't proposing. God forbid to write a get on Shabbos. He was proposing to write one on the second day of Shavuos. Okay, let's get back to today's topic, and it's in honor of this Shavuos that we just had. Um, Shavuos, of course, is the yard site of the Bal Shem Tov, and um, the one who is seen as the father of the Hasidic movement. Um, and he, he, I want to speak about the current trend of. Mashpiyim in the Hasidic world and beyond. It's not limited to the Hasidic world. I'm not sure, I'm trying to figure out, it the last several days, what the English translation of mashpim would be. Are we going to call them influencers? If it was 10, 15 years ago, then I would be very comfortable referring to them as influencers. The problem today is that it has this connotation of, of social media, which... I believe, uh, would be not doing justice to these great people who are mashpiyim in the Hasidic world. Um, So maybe we'll call them people who inspire or teach uh, Hasidic teachings to diverse crowds, something along those lines. I don't know if there's one word in English that can encapsulate what a Hasidic mashpiya is, but we definitely see them today people like Rav Melech Biederman or Rav Meyer Morgenstern, or remember a few years ago it was more popular, Rav Tzvi Meyer zilberberg or, or Rav Remel Shore, or you have in, in Breslov um, people like Rav Mata Frank. Frank. Um, uh, and, and there's tens and tens of examples, uh, and uh, people who are like that, great people, wonderful people, and I definitely usually do not talk about anything contemporary. Um, and I don't want to talk about anything contemporary, and therefore this is a very different type of an episode. By the way, I chose the topic, um, so it was not, uh, you know, I can't really even blame anyone, but I, I, we usually explore uh, Jewish history, we try to shy away from things that are contemporary. But here, um, it seem seemingly, this mashpiyim phenomena would be a, in the realm of sociology and not history. So why am I doing it? And I'll tell you why. The last several months, maybe more, several listeners have reached out to me regarding this topic, asking if there's a historical precedent or antecedent or a perspective that can be given to this curious phenomenon, uh, which somewhat breaks conventions within the Hasidic movement and to a certain extent has extended to the Orthodox world, Beyond the confines of the insular Hasidic communities and has an impact on the yeshiva community in both Israel and the United States, as well as the modern Orthodox community in the United States, as well as the Dati Lumi national religious community in Israel. So the this whole idea of these Hasidic Mashpiam and the influence it's not it's outside the established norms of the Hasidic court of Hasidic dynasties. These people who kind of like crop up from the grassroots up and have this grassroots influence without a formal institutionalized court um, or dynasty or political uh, organization behind them. They're just people who are inspiring others in hasidic teachings teaching others and people gravitate to them from across the orthodox spectrum and a lot of people are very curious about this does this how do we see this in historical context especially in the context of the hasidic movement and the answer is yes there is there is what to say about it historically the current day mashbim phenomena is a recurring theme in the history of the Hasidic movement going back to the Baal Shem Tov himself and has appeared in different forms and in different expressions throughout the nearly 300-year history of the movement. So that's what I want to go into, and that's that's not going to really speak about the contemporary uh, um, idea of it and how it works. I'm just going to try to relate it and how I see it through the history. So, um, what do these Mashpiam offer? Who are they and what is, who is their intended audience? And what is their place in the current Hasidic movement? And how can we view them in historical context? So, for one thing, in, in two uh, old and established dynasties, Breslov and Chabad, there were always Mashpiam. In Breslov, it was more understandable because since the Rebbe had passed on in 1810, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, and didn't really have a real replacement as a unifying force of the tzaddik of the entire movement, what what really uh, cropped up was the idea that there's different prominent mashpiyim within it, and that is a trend that continues in Breslov till today, and there's a lot to say about Breslov in that regard, especially since Breslov is 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 in is part of the story today because it's it's Breslov Mashpiam who are influencing and having an impact and teaching beyond the Breslov community both within the Hasidic movement and even beyond the Hasidic movement itself in other words people who don't nor regularly identify as Hasidic but will have a connection to the Torah of a popular Breslau of Mashpiya, and that will be his connection to Hasidic thought and teachings and Torah. Um, in Chabad, you have a similar concept, which is worth exploring on its own merit, but this existed all throughout the history of Chabad. Um, Mashpiyim, local Mashpiim in each town or in each major Chabad center across the Pale of Settlement um, in places that were quite distant, distant from Lubavitch, from headquarters, we'll call it. And there were these mashpiyim that always... And they were even called mashpiyim. I even had an episode recently about Remendel Futurfas, who was a mashpia in Chabad in the Soviet Union under very challenging circumstances. And there's literally hundreds of Chabad mashpiyim. Some of them were quite famous and prominent and are worthy of discussion in their own merit. So there you have, in two Hasidic dynasties, you always had this phenomenon. Just what we're seeing today is that it's way beyond just Breslov and Chabad with a much greater intended audience. And I want to um, talk about the today, again, before I get into the, more of the history, the hypothetical or perhaps real people who are the ones who are gravitating to these influencers, to these teachers of Hasidus. Um, they are the consumers of the Mashbiim's product, if we want to frame it in economic terms. The Mashpiyim are offering a product... And there are people who consume it. So, who is who are these consumers? So, let's say theoretically, in a very abstract, hypothetical sense, we have a babav or vishnitz chassid uh, residing in Yerushalayim or Bnei Brak. and let's say he's a proud vishnitz chassid, a follower of the vishnitz rebbe, who, whomever he may be. We've got quite a few to choose from today. And he, this our hypothetical yankel, we'll call him. Sends his children to Vishnitz schools, Davins in a Vishnitz shtibel with a Vishnitz uh, nusach and follows Vishnitz customs, donates funds to Vishnitz institutions, and since everything in Israel is measured in political terms, he identifies with and votes for causes which are promoted by the Vishnitz political activists and possibly even by the Vishnitz Rebbe himself. Yet, as a chassid, and as someone who identifies as a chassid, he seeks to grow in chassidus, in the unique service of God that was taught by the balechemtiv down through the centuries, in ways that were, you know, that he wants to be, wants to grow and and follow those teachings and be inspired to follow those teachings. So, in his spare time, he attends the weekly talk of someone like Reb Meilich Biederman, or something like that, or someone like that. And that doesn't in any way negate his vision, its identity. It's merely the address where he gets his chasidus, his teachings of chasidus. See, here we have a very interesting situation. His dress, his education, his customs, his politics, his institutions, etc., in other words, all of his communal or cultural identity is vizhnitz, that's that's where it is, whereas his connection to the mashpia and the message that this mashpiyah carries and the impact that this mashpia has on him, we can refer to as his Hasidic identity or his service of God identity, his Avodis Hashem, um, if we want to oversimplify things and definitely annoy some people by oversimplifying it and framing it in those terms so are there objective criteria to be classified as a mashpia again in 2023 as far as i know there aren't any i haven't found anyone who 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 made a very formal classification of what a mashpia is so you know i made up my own i made up four criteria what I would refer to as a mashpia, and this is all to better understand it in historical context. Number one, in order to be considered a mashpiyah according to the rules of Yehudi Geberer, you have to not have a dynasty. In other words, past and future, for the time being. As we'll see, it's very likely that in the future there will be a dynasty, a new dynasty. Um, but it's, right now, it's a completely a grassroots phenomenon. There's, the person doesn't come from anyone in the formal sense, he might have some yichus, but that's not what makes him a mashpia. Um, and, and, uh, and 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 uh, and right now, he's he stands on his own merits. That's criteria number one. Criteria number two: he does not have institutions or a court or a formal chotzer that a Hasidic rebbe or tzaddik normally has. No formal institutions or a formal court. The question is: if a shtibel is included in institutions. That's a good question. I'm willing to let a shtibl go. He's allowed to have a shtibl and still be called a mashpia. Number three, the main attraction, the main thing about him, his main claim to fame is that he teaches Hasidus in its most basic and simple form. Um, that's number three. And criteria number four, perhaps the most important of the four, is that the consumers or the people who gravitate to him, the ones who he talks to, the ones who are attracted to him, are diverse and not limited to a specific community within or even outside of the Hasidic movement? That's a very important criteria. Um, and there's a. And now I want to go in more into the history. Um, and because what I see is is I see there's a very big similarity between today's Mashpiyim and the Balshemtiv himself. Or, excuse me, (coughs) excuse me, or the Balshamtiv's early students, early followers, or even several students of the Magid, the Magid of Mizrich, obviously Rubda, the Magid of Mizrich, the primary successor of the Balshemtiv. The Balshamtav himself was someone who basically taught Hasidis did not found a movement and never oversaw a movement. About It grew into a movement in the last years of the Maggid of Mizrich's life in the late 1760s and the early 1770s and then even more so after the Maggid's passing. But for sure, the Baal Shem Tev who passed away on Shavuos in 1760, he never saw any Hasidic movement. So what was he doing? He had this small Chabura of students um, who came to visit him, or he actually traveled around and visited them. And he taught Chassidus. He taught a message. He had a message in Avodah Hashem, in Torah, in, 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 in the secrets of Torah, in the mystical part of Torah also. And he inspired others, and he had a strong and impactful message. And people were attracted to it and very excited about it. And they began to follow his teachings. And that's, he didn't have institutions, the Baal Shem Tov. he didn't have a formal court. Uh, he did not have, um, he also didn't have a Hasidic dress. Um, if you want to get into that, I think we spoke about that once. Um, he also didn't follow most of the Hasidic customs of today. So he was just teaching Hasidus, that's what it was all about. Um, and that's exactly what many of these Meshbihim are doing. Now, it's not only the Baal Shem Tov, it's also many students of his and students of the Maggit. Not all, some of them did establish formal courts. But some of them were just mashpiyan. Uh Some of the Baal Shem Tev, some, I mean, Rav Pinchas of Karatz, as far as I know, did not have a formal court. Um, he was probably just a mashpiyah. Um he, Who else uh, of the Baal Shem Tev, There are other examples of it. More of the Magid, I would think, or Mashaleib of Sasev, um was definitely, I would refer to him as Mashpey, of Leib Saraz, the same thing. Uh, to a certain extent, even the Kedusha Slavy Rebbe of bar he was the rabbi of several different towns, but he never had a formal Hasidic court, he never had any institutions, he never he never had a, you know, he never had that in the normal understanding of what a Rebbe is. Like some of his colleagues, um, such as the Naim Ali Melech, of Lezhensk, or the Balhatani, the Altar Rebbe, they had formal courts. I don't think the Kedusha Slavy the Rebbe Le- did As far as my understanding is, or even R. Shmuel Shmelke of Nicholsburg, who was also rabbi of several towns, but he was a mashpia. As far as his Hasidic tzaddik personality was, I don't think he was a formal rebbe, formal um, in the formal sense, what we recognize as a rebbe and as a tzaddik and a Hasidic leader. So I would say that many of the early, and there's definitely several other examples, and I'm sure our listeners will fill me in on who I forgot and who I should have said, and and, and, I, and, you know, and there's a lot to discuss about it. But many of these early people, the Baal Shem Tov himself, several of his students, several students of the Maggid, in the early generations of the Hasidic movement, there is this idea that they're Mashpian. And that's the early and that's the nature of the movement because it's a spiritual revivalist movement and there's a new message in the spiritual sense it becomes a social communal movement only in the next phase but in the early phase it's just a spiritual message that's all there is to it so uh, there's 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 um the Hasidic movement was that's what it was. It was um, in addition to that. It also became later on a social and communal framework as well. Later on, it was institutionalized even more. Once the courts became more established, once there was dynastic succession, once there was a wider geographic influence, um, once there's wealth increase in the court, and you can have things that are much more formal, much more organized. Once many tzaddikim and their dynasties had political influence. With the government, um, and there, and therefore, be, they become much more established, and it becomes less of the mashpiya type of Hasidic tzaddik, and it becomes much more formal, much more what we recognize today. Um, now, therein lay the challenge: if it starts off as a spiritual renewal movement, it goes through phases. There's this initial excitement. Um, and, and something new, something fresh. There's a new way to serve Hashem. It's very exciting. But as it becomes a mass movement, it overtakes kahillas. It overtakes communal infrastructure. The next generation of children are born into it. So it risks losing its vitality. And that's exactly what happened to the Hasidic movement. So what would be the solution? So when one takes a step back and views the movement's growth and success over nearly three centuries, one can't help but be incredibly impressed how well it's lasted, how well it's grown and flourished under new conditions, facing challenges of modernity, facing the destruction of the Holocaust, and ultimately rebuilding completely in new geographical locations, which were very different than where it had been born and flourished, in its early centuries of Eastern Europe. So what I see when I take the macro long view of the Hasidic movement, what I see is that the secret to its long-term success is the fact that it's able to reinvent itself from time to time. It's able to adapt new spiritual messages whenever it became too institutionalized. It's able to have these grassroots um, people and leaders, new ones, rise up from time to time and give it new vitality and give it a new message and therefore it is able to preserve and renew its vitality whenever necessary and I think that is a tribute to the success of Hasidus um, and, uh, and, and it's incredible to see how almost like every half a century or so, maybe a drop more, every 70, 80 years, you actually see this cyclical uh, movement. Now of, of renewal within the Hasidic movement. I think it's it's wild. It's it's an it's an incredible story to be told, which I'm going to touch on parts of it now because the reason I agreed to do something contemporary about Mashpiyim in 2023 on this podcast is because I really see it as a another stage in what has always been from every every 70 80 years in the Hasidic movement. I've seen I see it throughout its 300 year history and I see this is just the next the next one, and therefore it's exciting to see that, you know, it kind of like uh, um, verifies what, 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 what has been a theory in understanding the history of the Hasidic movement. You almost kind of like see history in front of your eyes. You see it happening again. In general, uh, um, it's important to view history as cyclical. History moves in cycles, maybe like a spiral. Um, but we uh, very often make the mistake of seeing history as progressive um, as a linear progressive line, it's not. It's it very much goes in cycles, and there's lots to say about that in general, both in general world history and in specific histories of different uh, ethnic groups or or societies or peoples. Um, it's definitely works in cycles, maybe like a spiral. So it's a bit of both. It's also progressive, but it's also a cycle, and therefore you see you, you know when we uh, you know. Because, like, again, thinking in, econ- in economic terms, the the downs in the market are not always something to be too concerned about because it's expected, it's built into the system, it's supposed to be. You recover from it much stronger and better than before, and that's how history works, everywhere. And the Hasidic movement is no exception to that. Um, and the, uh, um, the, the it, 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 so in the Hasidic movement, after this first stage of the, 1700s, when the Baal Shem Tev, his students, the Maggid students, these Mashpiim, who have this new spiritual message, and it emerges as a mass movement in the early 1800s. And now, for the first time, it's not just Mashpiyim. it's it's real, you know, institutionalized. It's real, established courts, and the leaders, the Hasidic leaders at the time, identified this as the first crisis of the Hasidic movement. We see it in their writings. It comes down to the stories that we hear. We heard about this time. Because now that it became a mass movement, now that it became institutionalized, so now there's the danger that it's going to lose, lose its vitality, its excitement, its message, its spiritual message. So there's various different responses. In fact, it's cited from one of the greatest tzaddik, tzaddikim of that era in the early decades of the 19th century, the Arla Reb Meir of Apta. He paraphrased the Pasuk in the Torah. He said, Daber el so. The job of the Hasidic tzaddik. Is to continue speaking to the Bnei Israel to continue speaking to the Jewish people. You just keep teaching Hasidus, and if it became too big and too institutionalized and too uh, uh, formal, that's that's. Then some people will gain, will still gain. Some people won't. But the job of the tzaddik is to continue business as usual. There were others who differed. Um, Rabbi Naftali of Rapshitz, the Rapshtzer um, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Tzvi Eli Shapiro of Dinov, the Bnei Saschar and others—they recast the Hasidic movement into its formal infrastructure. They said, "Let's take it, let's take it as is." Now that we've overtaken most Jewish communities in in Galicia, um, in that area, the the heart of the Hasidic world in the early eighteen hundreds is already Galicia at this point. And he said, okay, so now we're the rabbis of the towns, now we took over the communities, we're not an outside fringe movement anymore, we're a mass movement that has completely overtaken this area of Galicia, and these, these principal areas, so now let's try to bring the Hasidic movement into the daily life, and especially so... That they saw the challenges of modernity. Now we said, now we're going to use the tools of Hasidus, the tools of the Hasidic movement, to confront the challenges of modernity, to confront emancipation, technological advances, economic changes, um, the beginnings of secularization, the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment. Hasidus was not created to confront those challenges because the Hasidic movement preceded the challenges of modernity by at least a half a century, if not more. But these great Hasidic leaders said, now that we have it, the Hasidic movement has a bunch of tools, and these tools will give us... And that's the vitality. That's the renewal. That's the spiritual renewal. Because now we're this combative... Def- on the defense uh, tradition, and we're using Hasidus to combat these and confront the challenges of modernity, and that's the first uh, um, mashpiim sort of thing. It's not really mashpiim in the sense that we recognize it today, but what it is 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 saying that we can confront the challenges of modernity using the tools of Hasidus, and that is going to save Hasidus too. In in essence, we can say. That the challenges of modernity saved Hasidus because now they incorporated into the Hasidic identity that Hasidus is this defense, is this mounting this strong defense against the challenges of modernity. Another uh, response at the time was spiritual renewal within the Hasidic movement, kind of like a second revolution, which I don't mean in the in the dispute between uh, Stalin and uh, Trotsky, which I'm not going to get into at this point. I'm talking about within the Hasidic movement, there's this second spiritual renewal. Think Pshischa and what Pshischa brought, especially in its extreme factions like Kutsk um, it was this second renewal within the Hasidic movement—a new message, a new spiritual message, a new vitality, a new excitement. Polish Hasidus is built on that premise until Polish Hasidus becomes institutionalized, or if we go to the fringes of the Hasidic movement, that's Reb Nachman of Breslov. That's exactly his response. Um, Chabar, to a certain extent, also in another way, which I'm not going to get into. It's—it's it's we're short on time here, but. So that's the responses at the beginning of the 19th century. Towards the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, there's the second crisis of the Hasidic movement, and this is the great crisis. This threatened to make the Hasidic movement extinct, and I discussed this in its own episode, the great crisis of the Hasidic movement. And what's the primary response in this context? Education. This becomes the Mashpiyin the vehicle of mashpiyah, of bringing new vitality to the Hasidic movement at the end of the 19th and beginning of 20th centuries, is there's this new Hasidus through education, reaching out to the youth. Many examples of this. Probably the best one is also the first one. The establishment of the Taim Tamimim network of yeshivas by the Rebbe Rashab of Chabad in 1897. Taimchei Tamimim becomes... The engine of renewal within the Hasidic movement, especially in the Pale of Settlement, especially in the Russian Empire, especially in Chabad Lubavitch itself, but it has an inf- impact even beyond. Um, and I believe, and, and I'm sure I am sure my Chabad listeners will correct me if I am wrong, that the main person within the main educational personality within the Taimche Tzimim branches was the Mashpia. He was actually called the Mashpia, and uh, and this. And this was a renewal. Now, but it's not, it's not only in Lubavitch. It's in Ger, that's the Masifta of Warsaw, and other yeshivas that Ger oversaw. Alexander Chassidus starts a yeshiva at this time. Also, you have um, Radomsk. The Radomsk Rebbe starts the Kesser Teira network of yeshivas, which eventually has between 3,000 and 4,000 students across Poland. The Kedusha Siena Bubov starts the Eitz Chaim yeshiva network. There's a yeshiva in Vishnitz. There's Hungarian Hasidus borrows uh, the the Samsoyfer yeshiva model and incorporates it to Hungary and Romania. All right, the satmarov is, is uh, before he's a Hasidic leader, he's a rush Yeshiva and a Rav, the rabbi of the town. Uh, I think I mentioned that and many others are like that as well. Um Sokhachev has yeshivas, the Avne Nezer and, and and the his son, the Shemi Shmuel, they ran a yeshiva which was very popular. It got one of some of the best minds of Polish Hasidis came to study in Sokhachev. Um, and, and then you have the probably the best examples. Yeshiva's Blin. That's exactly what Umer Shapiro is doing. He's taking the the education and that is the answer to Hasidus. It's going to be a Hasidic yeshiva, but it's going to be a, on the grand scheme. That's Yeshivas Chachmah It's going to renew Jewish life in Poland. It's going to renew Hasidus in Poland. It's going to add vitality and renewal. And how is he doing it? By reaching the youth with a new educational model, which I discussed in another episode of Yeshivas Chachmah And my favorite example of it is Pia uh, The Pia Tetzna Rebbe. He almost basically almost retires from being a Rebbe. He moves out of Piyot Zetsna because of World War One, and never really goes back. He goes back for like Yom Tif, you know, he goes back for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur uh, a few weeks here and there. Um, But he basically lives in Warsaw. He transplanted to the urban environment, like many Rebbes did at the time. But he almost retires from his position as Rebbe and becomes a rosh yeshiva. He opens a yeshiva in Warsaw, Das Moshe. And his goal is to reach the youth. He has an entire educational philosophy, philosophy, which was very modern, very progressive. Um, and it's expressed in his books, like Chavis Atalmedim, and he reaches out to the youth. Um, and that's, that's an incredible story. of and, and, he, and in that context, he's a mashpia. The the rabber of Klinum is Kalman Shapiro is a mashpia, as were many of these other ones, in these Radomsky yeshivas or other places. Um, I remember interviewing an elderly woman who, uh, she grew up in the town of Oshpitzin, Oshvemshim, where the Nazis built right nearby Auschwitz. Um, and she was from a Bubover Hasidic family, and she told me that three of her brothers converted from Bubov to Radomsk. They became Radomsker Hasidim. Why? Because there was a local Kesar branch yeshiva in the town, in Oshpitzin, and they all attended that yeshiva, and they got swept away by the charisma of the Mashpia, or yeshiva, whatever he was called, in the local Kesar branch, and they became Radomsker Hasidim. Um... By the way, in this interwar continuation of the Hasidic crisis, there are other real mashpiah, uh, and and the first neo Hasidism, people um, like uh, Hill Zeitlin, or even if we could say, it, uh, in a, an extreme example, someone who wasn't even really Orthodox, Martin Buber. That's a neo Hasidic thought and. Uh, I, to a certain extent, that's beyond the Hasidic movement. On the on the outside, the Hasidic movement looking in. But my favorite examples from the interwar period of real mashpiim, kind of like what we're seeing today. The first one I can think of in Hungary, or kind of like Romania, actually at that time, is Reb Aryel Reb who later became the Reb Aryelach Hasidim, and today is referred to by his, his descendants, the Toldus Arain and Toldus Avram Yitzchak. And here is the best illustration how someone starts off as a mashpia, but his descendants already became, become a formalized, institutionalized Hasidic court with their own institutions, their own customs, and their own politics. Um, but it starts off as a mashpia. of al-Lorot is a mashpia in Satmer um, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and he moves to Palestine in 1940. And he's mashpia in Yerushalayim. He never really has. He's the shaymer emunim. He calls his his chabura, his group, his uh, followers, and they're they're completely. That's that's exactly a perfect. Rabbi might be the greatest example of what we see today. as today's mashpia. He was like that in the 1920s, 30s, 40s until his untimely passing in 1947. Um, and then what we have is, of course. Now it becomes a Hasidic court. A new dynasty is born. And that's what will probably happen with today's Mashpias as well. Skelen might fall into this category. Skelen is an interesting scenario, the Skelena Rebbe. Um, he kind of like is a mashpia who eventually evolves into a Rebbe himself. Another interesting one, more on the fringe of the Hasidic movement at this time, again, this time being in, in Eastern Europe in the 1920s and 30s, is Rabbi Huda Leib Ashlag. The Baal Hasulam, the one who is this Kabbalist, this mystic, a fascinating figure, a interesting figure. He has economic theory, political theory. He's almost like a Marxist. And he writes the most defining commentary on the Zaihar. And he has this following. People are into him. And he has this like kind of like mystical following, which also, against when, when, when he moves to Israel, and uh, through his son and grandson, his descendants, it, it becomes more formalized into a somewhat of a Hasidic court. It's definitely an interesting one. But he uh, himself was a Belz Hasid who lived in Warsaw uh, and was on the Warsaw Rabbinate for a time. So you're talking about he was you know, part of the mainstream in Polish Hasidus and he uh, is this Mashpia. He becomes this Mashpia. There's several other examples as well. Um, interesting is, is that we have a, 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 an interesting phenomena in the post-war rebuilding phase. What happens in the post-war rebuilding phase? We have a a, almost like a, a, a mix of both. We have Rebbe's, uh, Tzadikim, Hasidic leaders, who are from regular, formal dynasties with presumably regular, formal courts and institutions. But because of the destruction of the Holocaust and this, this burning need to rebuild, that makes it a new vitality. Uh, very new excitement. We're rebuilding. We're building a world that's lost and they attract new followers from among survivors or from among the general populace in the United States and Israel. And this brings me to another important and overlooked angle of this time. And that is the urbanized nature of the post-war where we could say with pretty much a certainty that well over 90% of surviving Rebbes in the Hasidic world lived in three places. Both of them, all three of them, excuse me, Oh, very, very urban: New York City, Tel Aviv, and Jerusalem. Um, and therefore, since that's the case, we have what I believe is the highest ever proportion in history of of rebbe's to to general population of people haimashi You know, people who would be interested in going to a rebbe. Obviously, there was the general Jewish population as well, which was quite significant. But I'm talking about people who would be interested in engaging the services of Rebbe's. And and therefore, if you were an average Jew living in New York City or Tel Aviv or Yerushalayim in the 1950s and 60s, you had an incredibly high array of Rebbe's to go visit and be inspired by and let them have an impact on your life and follow their teachings and hear their Torah and visit them. And you had incredible accessibility. They were all accessible because no one else was going to them. Many of these Rebbes were looking for a minion in our, on, for mincha on a daily basis. So you, this is a very important and overlooked story is that you have these Rebbes who ostensibly came from formalized, institutionalized Hasidic uh, dynasties and yet they're kind of like Mashpiyah in this 1940s and 50s and to a certain extent, the 1960s as well. There's this rebuilding phase. We're going to rebuild, rebuild a shul, and a yeshiva, and a and a court, and and the institutions. And and in Israel, it's also politics, right? So there is this there is this uh, rabbis who are also mashpiim during this rebuilding phase. And then from the 1970s and on, we find the, again cycles. Institutionalization follows the rebuilding in recent years. The institutional institutionalization leads to stagnation on the spiritual side of the Hasidic movement. Of course, the politicization of it does as well. So the recent Mashpiyim phenomenon should be expected at this point. After 40, 50 years of that, it should come as no surprise because institutionalization and politicization of a movement is, that is predicated on spiritual principles, it kind of like doesn't work, right? So therefore you need this renewal, otherwise something something bad can happen to the movement, especially since we're also looking at rapid demographic growth, which is another factor to bear in mind as well. and, and politics, you know, ever since politics, Orthodox Jewish politics rose in the end of the 19th century and through the 20th, especially in the state of Israel. So politics has a, a, a major um, important uh, factor in the Hasidic movement, but in, to a certain extent on the spiritual side, it's detrimental. So you have this balance, this dialectic balance that that balances it out. And that's where people like the Mashpiyam can come in. Also urbanization. Um that's that's the uh, that's 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 another factor, and if we bring it back to today, so beam are sort of like these mini balshemtivs. Uh, it's a throwback to the early days of the movement, or it's a throwback to those educators in the early 1900s who used education and 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 those types of. Uh, um, ironically, institutions <laughs> to to uh, bring vitality to an overly institutionalized movement. And time will tell. And with the cyclical view of history, it's safe to say that many of these mashpiyim will spawn dynasties of their own, which will later institutionalize and politicize. And then another generation of mashpiyim will come along in another form while still teaching the timeless lessons of Hasidus. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehud.yehudigeber.com at for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.